Testing one, one, two, testing, testing one, one, two. All right. I think I'm on. Good morning. You may be seated if you haven't already. What an absolutely beautiful Lord's Day. Amen. God is so good and kind to us. Well, let's turn back in our Bibles to Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. We'll be finishing up our series this morning on the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage. So this will be our third uh, message uh, regarding this. So let's read the passage this morning and then we'll open in prayer. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for the truth of your word. We're thankful this morning for your amazing grace and kindness towards us. We're thankful this morning, the song that we just sung, that God, you are faithful to your promises. You're faithful to your people. God, even when we are faithless, you are faithful. And so once again, this morning, as we open up the words of life, God, we need you. We pray for your spirit to illuminate the truth of your word, that you would help us to understand it rightly, that you would help us be obedient and apply it to our lives. God, may we exalt Christ in our marriages and in our families and our walks with you, Lord. So we love you. We ask all these things in the wonderful name of Christ. Amen. There's a lot of feedback. It may just be the wind that's blowing. All right. So we'll work through that. So in our first message, just in way of review, we talked about the beautiful gift of marriage. Your marriage is the doing of God and the display of God. You know, in marriage, I want you to really think about this. We have the wonderful gifts of companionship and friendship and sexual intimacy where the bible says to be fruitful and multiply the blessing of children which we've talked about 
hundreds of times here in the life of Everglades. We have the foundation of marriage and family, which is central to any civilization. It's central to humanity of fulfilling the creation mandate, of being fruitful and multiplying and taking care, having dominion over God's uh, creation, which he called Adam and Eve to do, and the same for us today. And yet, even greater than all these things, when we think about marriage, it's the covenant display of the relationship of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And that's why, as we have said over and over these last three times, marriage is first and foremost about the glory of God. It's about the holiness of God and not about our personal happiness, even though that is a byproduct of Christ-centered marriages. And then if you remember last time, we had to discuss the reality of divorce, the breaking of the covenant of marriage. You know, we live in a fallen and broken world. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have the hardness of our hearts, and because of these things, we can't deny the reality of divorce. Probably for most of us have experienced that either personally or within our extended families. And so we discuss there has to be two responses for any local church. Number one, and we have to do both of these responses, we should come alongside uh, people who have been divorced and weep and grieve with them. Divorce brings much sorrow and loss and tragedy. Many feelings of disappointment and anger and regret and guilt. As I said last time, few things are more painful than a divorce. Divorced people are not second-class citizens. We are all on the same team as followers of Christ. And then the second response, and as I shared last time, sometimes this one's a little bit harder as we're striving to be loving and caring and filled with the humility of Christ. We also stand on the sufficiency and the authority of God's word that we have a hatred for divorce. Why? Because Malachi 2.14 tells us that God hates divorce. We should pray for the will of God in the life of our families and our church family that we would never experience again another divorce. I want you to really think about that. Imagine in the life of Everglades Baptist Church for the next 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, that not one of our children, not one of our grandchildren ever having to experience the painful reality of divorce. Would that not be a good thing? We should pray for that. And so the question that we should be asking this morning, it's not as the Pharisees were asking there in Mark chapter 10, verse 2, when is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, or when is it permissible to divorce? The better question, as is the question for all of life, how can I glorify God the most in my marriage or in the difficult situation that I may find myself in? 
we must remember as difficult as circumstances are we're not guided by them but instead by the sure foundation and the truth of God's word and so we've looked at four essential truths that Jesus teaches regarding marriage and we'll finish that up today number one as we saw in Mark 10, 6 through 9, I won't reread that. We just read it. God's, God's design for marriage has always been and will always be permanence. The second thing we discussed last time, the only way the marriage covenant is broken biblically is by death. And that was Romans 7, 1 through 3. And by the way, one is free to remarry after the death of of a spouse if they so choose number three initiating and i use the word initiating a divorce is never lawful biblically and we looked at genesis and mark 10 luke 16 18 first corinthians 7 which we'll go to a little bit later you know there are very respected godly men that hold to either one or two exceptions we talked last time about the reality of adultery. We'll talk this time about what do you do when an unbelieving spouse abandons a believing spouse. And so some do hold to one or two exceptions to the permanence of marriage, and so they would hold to more of a semi-permanence view. But as we discussed last time, the betrothal view walks us through Matthew chapters 1, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 19 of the reality of betrothal before the consummation of marriage on the wedding night. And I'm not going to go back through all of that. You guys can listen to the sermon from last week if you were not here. Now, beginning to kind of move forward into today... Divorce and remarriage is not a perpetual or a continual sin of adultery. But it is initially an act of adultery. Once a new marriage covenant is established, the old one is broken, albeit not biblically, but it is broken and severed. God says in Mark 10, 9, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When divorce and remarriage occur, man has separated or severed the first marriage covenant, and he now enters into a new marriage covenant. God in his grace has blessed many second and third marriages. What started wrong, God in his amazing grace, his amazing grace blesses. However, this would not be a good reason to divorce. For those that may find themselves in a second or third marriage, be faithful to the vows that you have made before the Lord and before one another. Live in your new marriage covenant for the glory of God. Divorcing a current spouse to remarry a former spouse, as we discussed last time, would be sinful and wrong according to Deuteronomy 24. God indeed recognizes the new marriage as a marriage covenant. And I want you to see that if you'll turn to John 4, 16 through 18. John chapter 4, 16 through 18. Jesus has a conversation with the Samaritan woman 
at the well. John chapter 4, 16 through 18. So starting in verse 16 in John 4, Jesus says unto her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is is true. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to recognize from that passage. First of all, Jesus recognizes each husband the Samaritan woman had had. She had had five husbands. He recognizes each one of them as a marriage. The current man was not her husband because they had not been legally married so what's the application for all this well when we think about divorce and remarriage there should be a brokenness a confession of sin of repentance for a failure to keep our marriage vows and i know every situation is completely different and i have not been in everybody's shoes I can't relate to everybody's situation. But when we think about the reality of divorce, one thing that Jesus told us in Mark 10 is the hardness of man's heart. And so going before the Lord, is there confession and repentance that needs to take place? Secondly, by God's grace, there should be a renewed commitment to keep your current marriage vows. The vows that you took before the Lord and before one another. If you didn't hold to a permanence view before, I would encourage you to hold to that now. And be faithful before the Lord in the vows that you've made. And then finally, 1 John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Nobody has to live in guilt or condemnation for your past. Last thought on adultery, and then we'll move on to abandonment. Adultery is a terrible thing, and it is sinful against God and one spouse. However, we have argued biblically it is not biblical grounds for divorce. Can we not forgive as Jesus Christ has forgiven us. God never divorces his people even though they commit spiritual or we commit spiritual adultery against him over and over and over. And yet, even if one holds to this exception clause, as far as you can take that, if you're going to hold that exception clause, is divorce is permissible, not commanded. Now, let's move to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 through 16. 
I know we started in Mark 10. We pretty much have exhausted that passage of the covenant of marriage, the reality of you know, adultery and divorce. And so now we're going to turn the corner of, well, what about remarriage? You know, we've discussed the covenant of marriage, the reality of divorce. What does the Bible have to say about remarriage? And so we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What do we do when an unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage? This would be the other so-called exception clause. Now, before we start in verse 1, I want us to go to the end of the chapter because I think this is helpful. Go to verse 39 in 1 Corinthians 7. We read this last time, but this is very foundational, allowing the clear text of Scripture to to provide us with a foundation. Look at verse 39 in 1 Corinthians 7. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I too have the Spirit of God. We see the Apostle Paul arguing for the permanence of marriage. Now, go back to verse 1. A little bit of context, and then we'll walk through this verse by verse. Paul is addressing some matters within the life of the church at Corinth. Look at what it says in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. These are some things. We don't have this letter, but they wrote a letter to the Apostle Paul, and they had different questions about different things. The gospel was taking root in this community there at Corinth, and there were many conflicts to work through for these new believers. Do I remain a slave once I become a believer? Is it okay to eat food offered for idol worship at temples? Is it best to just remain single for the furtherance of the kingdom of God? If I become a believer, or I am a believer, and my spouse is still a pagan, a heathen, an unbeliever, do I remain in that marriage? These are all possible questions that maybe they were asking the Apostle Paul. So when you look back at verse 1, concerning these matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. So Jesus, or Paul here, is affirming the beauty and the blessing of singleness, which as I argued last time, we should celebrate singleness. It's not a sinful or a bad thing. Yet, in verse 2, he says this, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Marriage is also a gift of God's grace and is a wonderful thing in the Lord. And then I'm going to read 3 through 5. I'm not going to really comment on this because it's not too pertinent to our discussion today. But he says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, 
that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then now I want to pick back up in verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. He's talking about being single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. Verse 8, to the unmarried, to those who had not been married, and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. Again, God is affirming singleness. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So another gift of God's grace in marriage is purity, sanctification, to honor the Lord in that area of our lives. Now to verse 10. To the married. So now he's speaking to those that are married. And I think specifically, you'll see this as we get through verse 16, those that are married in the Lord. I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. Interesting, the Greek word there for separate is karizo. It just means to leave. It's not necessarily a divorce. Okay, there's two words that are used in this passage. This is the one that typically is translated separate. So she should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. So again, we see Paul arguing the permanence of marriage, okay? Or the gift of singleness, the restoration of a marriage that is broken or has conflict. And then he finishes up there in verse 11, and the husband should not, and he does use the Greek word for divorce, in this case, should not divorce his wife. Now, it gets a little bit tougher as we move forward now to verse 12. To the rest, and I think we'll see in the context here, he's talking about a believer who finds themselves now married to an unbeliever. Remember the context, the church at Corinth. This was a very wicked, vulgar culture. So you would have had people coming to faith in Christ so two unbelievers, and now one of them comes to faith in Christ. They are a believer, but they're still married to an unbeliever who's worshiping idols at the temple, involved in who knows what of ungodly activities. So what does Paul have to say about that? To the rest, I say, I not the Lord. Now, if you notice, if you go back to verse 10, he says, you know, not I, but the Lord. And now this time he says, I, not the Lord. If you think about it, verse 10, what he was talking about, Jesus had already addressed in Matthew and Mark and in Luke. But in verse 12, when he says, I, not the Lord, we don't have any public recording of Jesus addressing what Paul is about to say. It doesn't mean that it lacks any kind of authority, that it's not God saying it. The only point he's making, Jesus did not specifically address this type of situation. So to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever 
and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Think about that. Just because his wife is an unbeliever, if she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So he's saying the same thing both ways. Why? Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now, I want to park there for, for just a moment because I think this is super important. And I think this right here, if we're not careful, we get so caught up in our own personal feelings, so caught up in what our world says, so caught up in our own circumstances, so caught up in our culture, this is the part. If we're not careful, we miss it. Everglades Baptist Church, what I'm about to share with you over the next five minutes, we can't miss this. This is the beauty and the power of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what I'm about to argue for you. This is of utmost importance. Paul gives the why of staying faithful to the marriage covenant. First of all, we already know that God has established the permanence of marriage, which applies, by the way, to believer and unbeliever alike. It is a creation ordinance for all of humanity. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Secondly, the unbelieving spouse is made holy. That means sanctified or consecrated because of the believing spouse. Now, this doesn't mean guaranteed salvation. We'll see that in verse 16. But don't underestimate the blessing of the gospel covering in a home. And that, I'm telling you, if we're not careful, we don't see the significance of that. What amazing gift of God's grace for an unbeliever to live in a home where Jesus Christ is exalted and where the love and truth of Jesus is manifested. Will it be easy? Absolutely not. Am I in the shoes of someone that finds themselves in that position? Absolutely not. But is God's grace sufficient in that situation? Yes. I have to believe that with all my heart. Why? Because that's what the Bible teaches. Go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and you'll see the same argument from Peter. Why? Because God's word never contradicts itself. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Peter's going to say basically the same thing a little bit different way. Starting in verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if 
some do not obey the word, they are not believers, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. He's not concerned about outward stuff, right? Instead, look at verse 4. What a beautiful passage. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit. And I want you, for every woman in here, don't you miss this part of the verse. It just, it just jumps off the page. Which in God's sight is very precious. I didn't say that. God is saying that. In God's sight, this pure and this humble and this gentle spirit in the midst of a terrible, difficult situation is precious to the Lord. Verse 5, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, before I read verse 7 about the husbands, a couple of comments. A submissive wife to an unbelieving husband is a powerful, powerful thing. God uses the humility and the attitude of Christ seen in a godly woman to bring a pagan husband to an end of himself and to Christ. Godly wives who find themselves in difficult marriages right now never underestimate the beauty of the gospel seen in a soft and submissive heart. It's very precious in God's sight. I thought about this. I've seen a godly woman in her elderly age, she remained faithful to her husband. He was a drunkard. He didn't treat her well. But she remained faithful to her covenant of marriage before the Lord. And God, in his amazing grace, saved this man just a couple of years before his death. God, in his sovereignty, used her quiet and gentle spirit and submissive spirit to use all of that for her husband to come to faith in Christ. John MacArthur said it this way. The submissive wife may be God's chosen means for winning an unbelieving husband. And I'm just telling you, I can't guarantee that, right? I mean, only God saves. But I wonder how many times the beauty of this passage is missed. Because our society, our culture immediately says, divorce, 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 divorce. But God's word says, Jesus, Jesus, forgiveness, restoration, reconcilia reconciliation, the power of the gospel. Those are the things we have to wrestle with in our hearts. And then for the husbands, when you look at verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So husband, maybe your wife is an unbeliever. Live with her in an understanding way, 
which means with great gentleness and with great care, and show her great honor and respect before the Lord. Now, back to 1 Corinthians 7. I just wanted you to see that this wasn't a long passage. Peter said the same thing. So when you go back to 1 Corinthians 7, and you look back at verse 14, The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. So there's this covering, again, not guaranteeing salvation, even though that may happen. The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Now look at what it says about the children. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. What a good thing to stay married to an unbeliever for the sake of your children. You're providing them with a gospel, godly covering in the Lord, you're protecting them from defilement. I thought of it this way, just a practical application. Instead of going to idol worship at a temple, you're able to take them to the church of the living God. So they hear about Christ. There's such beauty in that. Now, verse 15, it gets even a little harder, doesn't it? Okay, let me say that. None of this is easy. Okay, none of this is easy. Only by the grace of God. Only by the power of the gospel. This isn't anything man can do. This is only what God can do. Look at verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, okay, again, it's not necessarily the word for divorce, separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now look at verse 16. Remember I told you there's no guarantee here. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Like you could give examples. Godly women faithful to their marriage vows and their husband never came to faith in the Lord or vice versa let's talk through this briefly if the unbelieving spouse separates if he leaves the Bible says let it be you're not under any spiritual or moral obligation to force them to stay to stay excuse me God has called you to peace which is freedom from guilt, worry, condemnation. You're not enslaved to make them stay. You can't make them stay. It's not your fault if he or she leaves. You don't have to live in guilt if your spouse chooses to leave, your unbelieving spouse. Now, some argue that this passage is teaching the freedom then to divorce and remarry, but I would argue that's not really what Paul is saying, and you're going beyond the reading of the text. Why would Paul argue for remarriage here when we've already seen he argued of only death ends the marriage covenant in verse 39 and verse 11? He argued for the separated wife to remain unmarried and strive for reconciliation with her husband. To me, there would be a contradiction there. Yet, I would say, that there may be separation. You may find yourself single for a really long time. You're praying for reconciliation. But like verse 16 says, there's no guarantee, is there? There's no guarantee before the Lord. You desire it, but you can't make it happen. Now, I do understand the unbeliever may initiate the divorce, right? Remember I said on the front end, to not initiate the divorce, the unbeliever may initiate the divorce. And depending on what state you live in, 
and the laws of the land, there may not be much that you can do about that legally. You know, as I looked at the state of Florida, you can kind of counteract to some extent, but there's a lot that you really just can't do, and so divorce may happen. Yet, what you don't see here is a command to divorce or initiate a divorce and a freedom to remarry. Initiating a divorce is never lawful biblically, but if the unbeliever divorces you, you may not can stop that from happening according to the laws of the land. Now, from a permanence of marriage perspective, you should remain single and pray for your spouse for reconciliation. From a semi-permanence position, they would say you have the freedom to remarry. Well, what if that unbelieving spouse remarries? Honor the Lord through a life of singleness. Some would say you have the freedom to remarry. What are all the practical implications of all this? Guys, this has been a, a tough couple of weeks, hasn't it? Like th This is one of the beauties of Everglades Baptist Church because we preach book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You can't skip over the hard stuff, can you? You got to preach it and you got to teach it. Like these are not feel-good messages. This is the hard reality of the fallen world we live in. So what are some of the practical implications as we wrap this up? Marriage by God's design is meant to be permanent. However, because of the fallenness of our world, the sinfulness and the hardness of man's heart, difficulties in marriage come. Sometimes divorce comes. There's only one unpardonable sin. And last time I checked, divorce and or remarriage are not those. That's not the unpardonable sin. As a local church, we must be ready and willing to love people well who have gone through these things or may be currently going through these things. Singleness is a blessing from the Lord. So whether someone who never gets married or one who finds himself or herself single after a divorce, singleness is a blessing from the Lord. As your pastors, we'll always encourage you to stay married, to reconcile, to preserve your marriage vows. Mark Lederbach said, pastoral love and compassion and guidance does not require the lessening of God's standard. Let me say that again. Pastoral love, compassion, and guidance does not require the lessening of God's standard. Guys, I speak for Jim, myself, for Doug. We don't love anybody here any less because of your family situation. Mark Lederbach also went on to say, conformity to Christ can't give way to the desire for relief, which would be a real desire in a lot of different situations. How about in the case of abuse? We really hadn't talked about that because honestly the Bible doesn't give this specific example. But I did have someone ask me about this, so I'll say just a couple of things before we wrap up. How about when someone finds himself in a terrible situation? Let me say on the front end, abuse, whether it's physical, sexual, mental, verbal, etc., etc., is a terrible, terrible, wicked, sinful thing that unfortunately happens many times in the fallen world we live in. As your pastors, we would do everything we possibly can to protect you from abuse, to love you and to care for you in that situation, yet not advising a divorce. Physical abuse is against the law. 
and civil authorities should be contacted if abuse occurs. We don't have time to go there, but you can go to Romans 13, 1 through 4. God has given our civil authorities the right to punish evil. And someone that is abusing someone else, that is evil. An abused spouse should seek a place of safety, whether it be extended family, friends, church family, or a parachurch ministry like the Lighthouse Refuge, which we have right here in Okeechobee County, Donna Dean. By the way, for us as a local church, we have to be ready and willing to help people that may find themselves in a situation like this. There's nothing unbiblical about there being an extended time of separation for safety reason and for the abuser to get the help that he or she needs. Because sometimes the abuser is the wife. It's morally right to protect oneself and one's children from harm. Yet, this is not biblical grounds for divorce. Instead, it's a time for prayer, for brokenness, repentance, and restoration for the abuser and for the marriage and for the one that has been abused. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, just one page over. Let's not forget the power of the gospel in each and every situation. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, you could add, nor abusers, will inherit the kingdom of God, right? He's not giving an exhaustive list of all sin. But then don't forget what verse 11 says as he's speaking to these believers at the church at Corinth. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do we not believe that the power of the gospel, that our God and his grace through the work of his spirit can change the heart and the mind of an abuser? I think he can. And we should pray for that to happen. God's grace overcomes all sin. Colossians 3.13 says, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You know, I thought about... I wish I had more time, but I thought about the steadfast love of the Lord that endures forever. And I thought about, you know, we could spend hours talking about the reality of sin. But think about God and Israel in the Old Testament. Think how many times that Israel failed God. Yet what did God continue to do? To love his people. Think about Hosea and Gomer, the prostitute. Over and over, she was unfaithful. To Hosea the prophet. And what did God tell Hosea to do? Over and over. Take her back. Take her back. Take her back. Why? Because it was a picture of God and his love for his people. Think about David's sin with Bathsheba. Terrible thing, wasn't it? Adultery. There were consequences. But do we not find Bathsheba in the lineage of King Jesus? How about the prostitutes Tamar and Rahab? You know where we also find them? In the lineage of King Jesus. How about Ruth? 
pagan, unbelieving, Moabite woman. You know where we find her too? In the lineage of King Jesus. God is glorified and even brings much good in the midst of our sinfulness. Never, never, never underestimate the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One may say, Pastor Eric, what you've taught these last three messages, that's pretty radical. I don't know if I agree with all that. My response would be, is not the message of the cross pretty radical? It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us. The question we must always be asking as Christians not when is sin permissible or divorce or whatever, but what will bring God the most glory in my life and in my marriage? I leave you with what we started with, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church marriage is first and foremost about displaying the covenant keeping love between christ and his bride the church let's pray together lord i hope and pray that you were honored today the truth of your word we read a lot of scripture but we know that your word is truth and you sanctify it Sanctify us with it. And so we thank you for that. God, you know better than us. These are some hard realities when we think about divorce and remarriage and the sinfulness of our world and the horrible, difficult circumstances that either people have come out of or may find themselves in. God, I'm thankful that you're filled with love and compassion and mercy and grace and that you never leave nor forsake your people. We don't have to walk through any of this alone. And I'm also thankful this morning, as your word has shouted forth, you are a God who saves. You're a God who brings transformation. You take hearts that are hard and dead in sin, and God, you make us alive in Christ. You soften us. You, you can take the toughest, hardest man the most sinful man, like the Apostle Paul, who said he was the chief of sinners, and you can bring that man to his knees and give him a new heart, a soft heart, a heart that will love his wife, a heart that will love his children. God, we, we must believe that. God, thank you for your amazing love and kindness and the power of the gospel. And so, Lord, would you help us as a church family to love our families well, to love one another well, to love our community well. And as Pastor Jim even exhorted us this morning, to love to the ends of the earth well. Now, there are broken marriages in Tobago that are in need of the gospel. It's not just about us here. It's about the world. God, we thank you. Again, just for who you are, the truth of your word, and would you help us this week to live it out?
And it's in the wonderful name of Christ that we pray together. Amen. Well, let's stand and we will worship the Lord through song.